Welcome back from your break. And if you're joining us from downstairs, I encourage you to come on up, rejoin us. And for those already in the sanctuary, please open in your scriptures to the book of Exodus, chapter 23. Exodus 23, and in a moment I'll begin reading from verse 10, and we'll be reading through the entire chapter. Um, we are continuing in our series in Exodus. You see the slide behind me. We're in a portion of the book entitled uh, The God Who Commands, and so we're expecting to read as we do more commands uh, from the Lord here in this passage. Um, and next week, we'll conclude our study of Exodus for now, uh, looking at chapter 24, a significant chapter as the covenant is confirmed with the Israelites, and then take a break for the summer. We're excited for what we're doing this summer uh, with you with God's Word. But this morning, we're looking at Exodus 23, uh, beginning in verse 10 uh, through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read the entire uh, portion of our scripture together um, to begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Your word reveals your character, and in these passages, Lord, we catch a new glimpse, a fresh glimpse of your goodness and your gloriousness as both a holy God and a loving king who cares for his people. So we pray, Lord, as we consider these words, your words, these living words, that they would speak to us of your character and point us again to Christ Jesus, our hope in this life and in the next for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. This is the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 23 beginning in verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times. In the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None, of, none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year 
shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This ends the reading of God's word. To him be the glory. What fuels genuine and lasting allegiance to God and his commands. What fuels your and mine, if you're a Christian, genuine, joyful, lasting allegiance to God and his commands? This passage of scripture, as we conclude what is called the Book of the Covenant, prior to the Covenant Ceremony, which we'll read about next week, 
where God joins himself to Israel in a formal covenant agreement ends with those life-changing truths. It answers the question for us, what fuels loyal and joyful and lasting allegiance to God and his commands? Let me share a story that I shared with some students recently that illustrates the importance of fuel and, and getting the right fuel right for the engine to work. I had the privilege to teach two of my children how to drive, and like some of you, um, saw them successfully pass their driving test on the first try, perhaps not the permit, test, but the actual driving test. I had no control over their study habits for the permit test. And they did all the things that I thought important to teach them, like fasten your seat belts, adjust your mirrors, drive the speed limit, honor all stop signs, do not park in the handicap spot. You will regret it. A friend of mine recently shared a story where there was a particular lesson I left out that he left out that when you leave it out can have disastrous consequences for young and old drivers. You see, my friend, when teaching his son or daughter to drive, to celebrate their accomplishments allowed him or her to drive a very expensive car. So think of the car that you drive and then some, like a Tesla or a Mercedes, not a Tesla because that's electric, a Mercedes or a BMW or a, a 2015 Honda Pilot. His son or daughter took it out for a drive. In fact, it was a long drive. They went to the Cape to celebrate their achievements. And while driving home, they noticed that the gas gauge was running low. It seems simple enough. You pull into the Cumberland Farms or your gas station of choice and you fill her up, right? Fortunately, the father had not explained to the son or daughter that this very expensive car with its very expensive engine only takes one type of gas, unleaded. And he or she filled it with diesel and drove the rest of the way home. The car sputtered, the engine stalled, there was all kinds of smoke. And the father came out and said, what did you do? I don't know what I did. It was fine for until I filled it up with gas. And then, well, what kind of gas did you use? Diesel. The father shook his head and realized that permanent damage had been done to the engine, which it was that cost thousands of dollars to repair. 
you would never do that. And that I did not do either. So don't say that was a bower. But I think we need to add that to the lessons when you're teaching your kid how to drive. You know, after seatbelts and honors, use the right fuel. There are a lot of Christians today, and pastors for that matter, that are losing heart and experiencing unexpected discouragements. And their joyful allegiance to the Lord and their faith-filled obedience to his commands is wavering. Not just because of those things that might come to our mind, any Christian who seeks to walk with the Lord with any amount of integrity and do what he commands us to do will experience the inevitable, if you will, cycle of trying to do what God has told us to do, striving only to fall short or even failing, experiencing forgiveness, but perhaps discouragement that I I, I did it wrong yet again, and then re-engaging the Lord, striving again, praying for more grace, only to fall short or fail or sin again. And, and the pattern repeats itself to the point where some, perhaps not you, but many are tempted to lose heart. We live in a day where obedience to the Lord has become, and His commands really, a casual affair. Or the opposite, where obedience to the Lord has become almost legalistic, as if that's the basis for true fruitfulness in Christ. Here at the epilogue of the Book of the Covenant, these rules and laws and regulations that God has given to Israel through Moses. He provides for them two saving promises that if they will obey him will need to be held on to in order to provide the fuel and the motivation to propel them forward to a life of faith-filled allegiance and loyalty to the living God. The first promise is found in verse 20. You probably noted it. An angel of the Lord God will send to guide and guard Israel. And the second promise is found in verse 24 and to the end of the chapter, the promise of a glorious inheritance, a land that will belong to the former slaves, full of blessing. And yet it comes on the heels of 10 additional laws. Did you notice that? We read through it quickly. Verse uh, 10 to the end of uh, verse 19 Ten, ten laws, uh, a Sabbath for the land, a, a period of rest for the land after six years where the poor and the animals can, can graze. And then, of course, the reiteration of the fourth commandment in verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And then three 
national feasts to be kept by all the men of Israel. Three times a year, they are to make pilgrimage to wherever the the tent of meeting was, the tabernacle, later the temple, the feast of unleavened bread, which we've already looked at earlier in Exodus, the feast of the harvest, verse 16, and the feast of... What is to distinguish God's people as they enter the promised land includes these three pilgrimages where as a nation, the men gather and bring with them an offering to the Lord. And then four instructions regarding appropriate sacrifices and inappropriate sacrifices. The least of which gets the most press, right? You shall not boil a young goat in its milk. And there's all kinds of ink been spilled over what that means. But probably, most likely, it was a Canaanite practice, practiced in their tribal rituals. And so to distinguish them, they were not allowed to do that. So the first point's simple, which we've said many times throughout this portion of the book. Dave said it last week. I said it earlier weeks when we began the book of the covenant in chapter 20. The law calls Yahweh's people to live a God-centered life. Whether it's the 10 laws we read here at the end or the laws that preceded it or the 10 commandments, the law calls Yahweh's people to live a God-centered life. He who delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and has brought them on eagle's wings to himself at the mountain and is now committing himself to them that they are his people and he will be their God. They are to be a a treasured possession to him and a, a holy priesthood even unto the nations distinguishing through their their society as well as their individual lives that they are loyal and loving subjects to the great king. The law calls Yahweh's people to a God-centered life. So what will fuel their obedience then in the land when they are confronted with their own tendencies to fall short in sin or the enemy himself through these nations that oppose them will confuse them and deceive them into thinking that their gods are more powerful and more faithful than him. The first is God's saving promise of his presence. And that's point number two. Behold, I will send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. What fuels genuine and lasting allegiance for Israel to God and his commands? It's the promise of his presence. What fuels your and my obedience to his commands? Motivated by grace. It's the promise of his presence. God says, I will send an angel before you. What a stunning declaration. God himself is sending to his people a constant communion to be with them. And his job description is 
crystal clear to guard them on the way to the promised land and to bring them, second part of verse 20, to the place that I have prepared for you. That is God's promise. This angel, this mighty being will both guard and guide them to the promised land. Who is this mighty angel? If you think commentators like to speculate about boiling a young goat in its milk, they write chapters on the mighty angel. And if time permitted, I don't think I would review even all of that material with you. But I would simply point us back to Exodus, where the mighty angel has appeared twice before. And for the original audience, it would be familiar to them that at the burning bush in Exodus 3, where Moses hears the call of Yahweh, we are told that as he, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, was keeping his flock, as he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Oreb, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And then again in Exodus 14, which we looked at together earlier in this series, after the 10 plagues had concluded and God had led the people out of Egypt but brought them to the Red Sea where they were entrapped by a wall of sea to one side and Pharaoh's approaching armies. We read in Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near of Exodus 14, the people of God lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and they cried out to the Lord. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Who is the mighty angel that is promised here who will guard and guide them? to the promised land. It's this angel of Exodus 3 and Exodus 14. But did you notice in verse 21 the authority that this angel brings? Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against the angel. And then he goes on. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Who is this angel that has the ability to pardon and not pardon Israel's transgressions? Who is this angel who has the very name of Yahweh in him? This is what John McKay and his commentary says is a theophany, this angel, meaning simply this, it's a big word. This angel is a visible manifestation of the presence of God and God's presence through, through this angel is not simply to be their guide, though he is that, and to be their guard, though he does do that. What is more, he brings the very name of God God's manifest presence in angelic form to the people of God. 
And if we need to be further convinced that this angel represents the presence and authority of God, listen to how God speaks of him in verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. If you obey his voice and do all that I say. It's almost as if the angel and the Lord himself are interchangeable. He is clearly the the custodian of, of God's commandments, mediating not only the commands of God to God's people, but in such a way as to listen to the angel's commands as to listen to God. He is the custodian of God's words. And although there needs to be more qualifications and limitations and so that we're not drawn into thinking this has anything to do with what culture depicts angelic beings are like, God's primary concern for us this morning is this. It's his presence with them that fuels their obedience. It's his holy presence with them that is to fuel Israel's obedience. In other words, God is promising to manifest his presence to Israel as he guards and guides them to the promised land so that they will obey his commandments. The covenant that he is about to confirm with them will detail a relationship God's people are to have with him that they are to carefully obey. And God is now sustaining them through their journey and now promising to be with them as they enter the promised land of Canaan. With really uncomplicated words, he says, my call is simply this, I am with you. I delivered you from slavery and brought you to myself on eagle's wings. Pay careful attention to all my words. Obey them fully and completely. How, Lord, through my presence, my holy presence, which will fuel a life of allegiance to him. The promise of God's presence in this passage as they journey is meant to provoke his people to the realization that, yes, he is holy. Amen? He is with them. Amen? And he is able to enable them to obey his commandments for his glory. Yes? The promise of his presence reminds Israel of the seriousness which God takes their sin. And impress upon his people the importance that their obedience really is. Now, it has to be said at this point, and we've said it repeatedly in this series, but the mother of all learning, I'm told, is repetition. That although this promise, this stunning promise of his holy presence with them, both to guard and guide them, but as well to fuel their obedience to him, is crucial, it's not the foundation of their relationship with Yahweh. He redeemed them in Egypt. 
the Passover lamb was slaughtered in their place in Egypt. He saved them and committed himself to them prior to and distinguished from their obedience to him. This salvation is all of grace. It's not the basis of their relationship, but it does inform a right response to their relationship today. When my kids were younger and we would go on family vacation, we had to drive most places to those vacations. It wasn't until they were much older that we could afford Southwest Airlines and actually fly an airplane. That's another story for another day. But since I was the driver and we were driving minivans, I know none of you would have this, but we had very clear rules for the ethics of sibling interactions on 10-hour-plus drives when I was driving them, particularly to Maine. We do these all-night drives to Maine from the Philadelphia suburbs. Share your toys. Please, just share your toys. No hitting your siblings. No hitting your siblings. And please do not yell at the driver. It was simple. Simple rules. Share your toys. Do not hit your siblings. Will, do not hit Brittany. I know she's driving you crazy. Stop it. And do not yell at the driver. And when they broke those rules, they'd see the eyes in the rearview mirror. They'd get the look. It, and it wasn't a friendly look. It was a look that said, are you going to make me stop this long trip in order to remind you of the rules? But lest I be confusing, the basis of my relationship with them was never keeping the rules on vacation. I love them. They're my family. That's why I took them on vacation. I think sometimes in our walks with Jesus, we forget that. We think, and that's why we talk so much about the rules that we're keeping in order to assure ourselves that he loves us. But the gospel says it's just the opposite. He loves us because Christ kept the rules and died for me and you, the sinner, who broke the rules so that when we believe in him by putting our trust in him and turning from our sins and making up our own rules and following him, we are brought into a relationship that is grounded and founded and established on Christ alone. Amen? That's good news. But the right response to that relationship is repentance, is obedience, is asking forgiveness of him when we mess up. It's the promise 
of his holy presence that both brings the sweet conviction to you and my heart when we break the rules and then enables us to turn to him and turn to others if our actions have influenced them and receive forgiveness, amen? And then be forgiven and free and then begin again to walk with him in joyful and loyal allegiance. That's the promise of his glorious, holy presence in our lives. Friends, how does the promise of Christ's presence remind you of the importance of our obedience to his word? How does the promise of Christ's presence through the gift of salvation, oh, what a glorious gift it is that brings us into this relationship with Jesus remind you of the importance of our obedience word. Obedience was not a suggestion option for Israel, but a gracious provision of a good God whose commands were for their good and for his glory. And Christ's commands to us as well are not an option, but rather a gracious provision of our Savior And through his presence, it enables us, it fuels us to obey. So I'm going to hold on the last part of the the glorious inheritance of the land. And I'm going to ask us one final application question and then give you a couple of verses that you could consider taking to your week. And it's simply this. What gospel promise can I bring into my week that will fuel my loyalty and obedience to Christ? What gospel promise, what promise from God's word can I bring into my week that's fulfilled in Christ and kept by faith through his obedience, but we are called to obey it or trust in him or or put on or put off in order to walk with him. What gospel promise can I bring into my week to fuel your loyalty and obedience to Christ? Here's one, and Jim, this is Hebrews 11:6. It's very simple. But when my devotions are flagging, right? Meaning I, I'm just, I'm not finding the energy that I once found to open my Bible, and read scripture and commune with the Lord. When my times of prayer seem very, punctual or whatever that other P word was that was there a moment ago. Perfunctory. In other words, brief and not amazing. I'm just going through the motions. When my evangelism has, has no heart, no empathy, it's just, it's just blasting truth, but very low interest in the individual. That, or maybe no evangelism at all. Maybe I'm loving non-believers who never tell them about Christ. I fall into that trap. Maybe more at home. When my love for my spouse begins to diminish. When I promised her or promised him years ago as a Christian, unfailing love, but unreconciled conflicts or selfishness or just the influence of the culture, my marriage really doesn't look that different from other marriages, and yet I'm called to display 
Christ in it. When my work, right? When my work habits and my work ethics reflect more of the culture of the office than it does the presence of Christ, whose holiness says I work unto him, whether I'm recognized or rewarded. I could probably go on. Here's a simple promise. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Yes. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. But whoever would draw near to God must believe first that, yes, you exist and that you are the rewarder of those who seek you. Recently, uh, a Christian, I conclude with this illustration story to encourage you to apply this promise of God's saving prayer. A Christian counselor who I respect, he or she was sharing in an interview um, that uh, their number one source of new clients is not adults, it's teens, Christian or otherwise. Teens who are experiencing anxiety uh, in, in levels and in, in dimensions that, that he or she has not seen before. And the, the solutions that he or she uh, was offering began with this. For the, for the Christian, he or she said to the counselee, the teen who's gripped with anxiety, paralyzing fear, is there a scripture? Is there a promise? Is there a verse in the Bible that you can go to now and have ready to use when you're afraid? And oftentimes, the answer that would come back would be no. And the counselor would say, then ask your parents. For certainly your parents have a verse, have a truth. But then she didn't stop. He didn't stop. He says, is there a song? Is there a worship song? That having read the verse, you can then have ready in your playlist, ready to hit, ready to fire that thing up that takes that verse and then projects it to God. Says, Lord, I love you. I need you fueled by your presence faithful loyalty and obedience to you when I am afraid. Is there a song? And lastly, he closed the loop. She closed the loop. She says, now we're going to write out a prayer before the session ends. You're going to write one out. It doesn't have to be long. You're going to write one out. And I'm going to write one out too because I get afraid. I have a review coming up and I don't think my boss really likes me and, and I take these things personally. So I'm going to write out the prayer and we're going to exchange these cards and then you're going to text me, and I'm going to text you later in the week when we're afraid, and we're going to pray for one another. And there's just stunned silence on the other end of this interview, like the person's coming up with, you know, a new vaccine. I think what it reveals is that 
Moses and God's Word and the New Testament needs to be listened to a little more carefully. For it tells us that what fuels genuine and lasting, joyful allegiance to Christ and obedience to His commands is the saving promise of His presence and the glorious promise, which we didn't get to, of His inheritance. God Himself has entered into a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. May He give us the grace this week to not only depend on Him, but listen to His Word. Sing these songs and pray for more of His strength that we, we would draw near to Him because we believe that He rewards those who seek Him. Let's pray. Lord, this is what life is all about. This is what the Exodus was all about. This is what the Christian life is all about. It was relevant to their day, and it is particularly relevant to our day. Not only your presence, but to experience your promised salvation through the ability to joyfully and faithfully remain loyal and obedient to you. Lord, I pray as we go into our weeks that you would bring to mind those scriptures, those truths that would fuel our faith in you. And you would use a song or songs to lift our voices and lift our hearts to you. And, and you would allow others, Lord, to pray with us as we face those temptations and tests and trials that we can, Lord, keep covenant with you and bear fruit in so doing and bring you glory for the sake of Christ, our beautiful Savior. We thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, as we apply it now, grant us your spirit as you guide and guard us in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand.